You may be sure that I have approached this assignment with considerable trepidation. Most of you have to listen to me too much, I'm sure. But I've come to it with one word of one inner thought of encouragement. Many years ago, I had the privilege of hearing a Baptist evangelist in this country who was a converted Jew by the name of Hyman Appleman. I heard him tell a story one night that uh, has given me encouragement from time to time with reason. He told about being invited to a Texas city for a citywide campaign. And he said he preached the first night, and after the service, he went to a Baptist deacon's home where he was to stay during the campaign. And he said that night, as they sat and talked, the man who was the, uh, his host talked to him about all of the great preachers that had been there for citywide Baptist campaigns before him. And he named them all. He even named that greatest of all Baptist preachers, uh, Dr. George Pruitt. And Hyman Appleman said, he was the greatest of them all to me. He said, I knew that if you preached long enough to a block of granite and you looked closely, you'd see tears in its eyes and warmth in its heart. But he said, after he told me about all these great preachers, he said, uh, now what kind of meetings have you had? And his host said to him, well, the strange thing is we have never had one that was a success. Every one of them has been a miserable failure. And he said, my heart sank. And he said, do you mean when you had George Truitt here, your meeting was still a failure? And he said, oh, yes, it's very great failure. Well, he said, how do you expect to have anything with a fellow like me? And the deacon said, well, that's our question, too. <laughs> he said, you know, as the meeting moved along, he said after three or four nights, there came a break. And he said, we had one of the greatest meetings of my career. And he said, I was totally nonplussed. So he said, uh, I began trying to think that one through. And he said, I finally got a little information. The Lord said, Hyman, don't you understand that? And he said, well, I'm not sure, Lord. You'd explain to me what's going on. And he said, the Lord said, Hyman, you know when George Pruitt came into this city and preached that magnificent sermon that first night and they looked at that great preacher so dignified, so stately, and so effective, they all went home and said, this is going to be a great crusade. And that was the end of it. But he said, when they came in that first night and took one look at you and listened to you that night, they went home and got on their faces and said, dear Lord, if you don't help us, we're done before we start. <laughs> and so Hyman said, thank you, Lord. I'm glad to know how these work. But that's true. The important thing this week is that we open our hearts not to just a speaker or to a singer, but that we open our hearts to the one who is the true host here. I was speaking this summer, and a friend of mine came to me, and he said to me, he said, you know, I never thought about it before. You know that saying that you find sometimes in homes where it says that Christ is the unseen guest, the, Christ is the Lord of this house, the unseen guest at every meal? My friend said to me, he said, today I realize he's not the unseen guest, he's the unseen host. We're the guests. And that's true. The important one during these days is none of us, but the important one is the one whom we cannot see, but whose presence we can sense. And this auditorium is a place of meeting, like the Old Testament tabernacle, a place of appointment. And when we come in at night, we can count on it. He will be here whether we're here or not. And so as we come, he should be the one to whom we're most sensitive, and he should be the one whose voice we should listen to for and whose voice we should obey. 
And I covenant with you that I will try to be sensitive to his voice and try to be obedient to what he says to me. And let us, let's us as a community listen very carefully for his voice and try to be obedient to what he has to say to us. These are not our services, these are his. And this is not our week, but this is his. And so let's give him the tribute and the attention that he merits. I want to take a text tonight that you probably have never heard a sermon on before and you may, well, never hear another one on. But to me, it's one of the great texts of the scripture now as I have looked at it. Never tried to speak on it, but a couple of times. But uh, as I have lived with it, it has become more meaningful to me and more incisive as far as something of a recapitulation of what the scripture has to say about you and me. It is in the 10th chapter of the prophecy of Jeremiah. It is the 23rd verse, and we will read only the one verse. I wish that I could read it in such a way that it would be imprinted on your memory forever and you could never erase it. The prophet is speaking. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Now let me read it again. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. And what a magnificent text. You will notice that here you have, if you look at it carefully and analyze it, a magnificent reduction of what Scripture really has to say about you and me. You notice, first of all, that it is speaking about us. The subject is man. O Lord, he is the one whom it, who is addressed, but we are the subject. I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. You will notice that the thing that it says about us is that we're creatures made for motion. Because the one thing it says, the first thing that is noticeable in the text about us is that it is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. And the emphasis is upon the word walketh and the emphasis is upon steps. We are creatures made for progress. We are creatures made for motion. We are creatures who were made to go somewhere, and that is the characteristic that the, that the prophet sees as he looks at you and me. We are creatures who were made from our very beginning to grow and to move. If you know anything about human conception, you know that it is, an, it is a whirlwind of motion, and once the conception has taken place, two things are characteristic. One is growth and one is movement. And it only takes about nine months for that growth to become so much that the possibilities of movement are too limited and that child must look for a larger world in which he can grow more fully and in which he can move more freely. And so then he moves from crib to pallet to to rug, to door, and he's on his way, and the one thing you know about mortal men is that they are creatures who move, made for growth and made for progress. We are not made for, to be static, and we are not made to be stationary. We are made to walk, and we are made for movement, for growth, and for progress. Now, growth and progress are measurable items, aren't they? The minute you talk about growth, you think of Growth, you think of a person's stature at one stage and then it, there is development, there is growth, and he is larger. Or when you think about progress, you think of a position and then a person going beyond it. And that is something that we know is measurable. And what else can you say that's more significant about man that, that he is a measurer of things? 
I think you could almost say that man is the world's measurer because we measure everything. We measure IQs, we measure personality profiles, we measure, we measure all sorts of things, and that's what a college is all about. It is a matter of measuring. And really, that's one of the chief characteristics, chief differences between an animal and a man, isn't it? You don't find animals going around with yardsticks and foot rules and with measuring devices, but you do find men. And that is one of the major differences between primitive man and advanced man. You take advanced man, he is one who has mastered the art of measuring. And when we talk about technological progress, like landing a machine on the moon or landing it on Mars or landing a person out there, we know that it is only possible because of centuries of work and refinement of measurement measurements that have become so developed that it is possible to put a person out hundreds of thousands of miles in space safely because we can control the movement that's there. But now you will notice that here is the problem. If you're going to measure anything, you have to have a starting place and you have to have a frame of reference. There is no way that you can measure if the starting place moves on you or if there is no starting place. But once a frame of reference is established and a stable point is fixed, then it is possible for you to check out growth and measurement, but it is only when that stable point is established. Now here is where the text comes in. Do you notice what the prophet said? How insightful. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. And so the prophet speaks and says, oh yes, you cannot have growth, you cannot have progress, you cannot have identifiable movement unless you have a starting point, but get it settled once and for all that the starting point and the frame of reference is not in you. And if you try to call yourself the starting point or the frame of reference, there will be neither true growth nor will there be any true progress. Now, man has no starting point in himself. The frame of reference is somewhere else. And this is the essence of sin, and this is the essence of what it means to be lost. It is for a man to be so encompassed in himself that he becomes his own frame of reference, and then there is no meaningful development in his life. How can you have meaning when there is no identifiable starting point and no identifiable goal? And if you do not have a starting point, you're going to have a difficult time establishing an identifiable goal. Somewhere, I think it's in Lewis Carroll, there's the story about the fellow who was invited to join a race, and he said, well, where do you start? And the fellow said, start wherever you are. And he said, well, how long do we run? And he said, run as long as you feel like it. And he said, well, where is the finish line? And he said, well, the finish line is wherever you stop. Then the big question came, well, who wins then? And the fellow said, oh, everybody wins. You know, when everybody wins, there's a sense in which nobody wins because it's no longer a race. And you can count on it. You're not going to be able to sell very many tickets to that kind of athletic endeavor because it's meaningless. You may attach the word race to it, but automatically you know that it isn't because there are no identifiable points from which you can judge it. Now, not only, and this is what happens, when man sets himself as his frame of reference, when we judge ourselves by ourselves, you can count on it. The end is what the writer of Ecclesiastes said. 
Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, saith the prophet. There is nothing there are there is nothing new under the sun, and futility, meaninglessness, emptiness, that is the result. But you know, if you do not have an identifiable starting point and an identifiable frame of reference, it can not only lead you to meaninglessness, it can lead you to an extreme to extreme danger as well. I never had the privilege of being a Boy Scout, but I remember when I was a kid, the Boy Scouts telling me that they said, did you know that you can tell which is north by the moss on the back of a tree? And I thought, who would ever be interested in that? And then they enlightened me. They told me that when you get lost in a great forest, the simple, the, the natural thing that takes place, if you do not have some ability to find direction, is that you move in an ever-moving circle. And you will end up back where you started if you do not have something to identify a direction for you. So, we, so I was told that one of the things a Boy Scout learns is how when you are lost and there are no stars, there is no sun, there is no moon, there is no identifiable way of knowing the points of the compass and you have no compass, how you look at nature to try to find some indication so that as you move, you can move in a straight line because you can never get out forest is large enough if you have no point from which to start and no goal toward which to go. Now, I remember when I was a kid in those days, the most exciting thing was not a trip to the moon or space exploration, but I grew up in the days when the great and exciting thing in science was uh, uh, Richard Byrd took a group of people and went to the South Pole. And when they went to the South Pole, they built there in the ice a home where they could stay and they spent many months down there. I remember reading that with great excitement. One of the things that I remember the most was the danger that was there for the men who spent their life, spent those months down there. The danger was not from the cold because there were ways to take care of that. But the danger was that if a man ever got a few feet away from his, the door that he came from, in the blinding snows that were there and in the whiteness of it all and in the vastness of it all. A man could wander and die 15 or 20 feet from the point that he started from and never know where he was. All white, all blinding, there is no mechanism within a man that can say that's north. There is no mechanism within a man that can say that's south. There is no mechanism within us. The way of a man is not in himself. And the man who has no saving point of reference outside himself, that man is lost and that man is in great danger. I remember talking with Jimmy Lynch once about flying and some of the problems and Harry Greenberg about it. And I remember a trip that I made when I had a chance to ride in a small plane. And I know nothing about flying, but... I was able in that small plane to sit behind the pilot where I could watch his uh, instrument panel. I looked to see if really there was the instrument there that they had told me about. And sure enough, there was an, uh, an artificial horizon. And as that plane would tilt like that, that horizon would stay steady. And as it would tilt like this, that horizon would stay steady. And I talked with some of them about it. And they said, oh, if you get in a jet plane, you take a fighter pilot particularly, say in a dogfight or something, as he is turning and moving, the human body cannot keep a sense of balance in that. 
And he may be flying upside down and think he is right side up. And so that artificial horizon is not only built to show you the way the horizon sits, but it's colored so that the top is, is the sky and the bottom is the earth. And if that blue gets on the bottom, you know that you're in trouble because it's you that's turned around and not the instrument. <laughs> it's magnificent to me the way God built all of life so that if we will, we can know the truth. But the prophet said, O oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. There's no built-in comfort in you or in me. Now, when we do not have it and when we make ourselves the only frame of reference, the only result can be illusion or delusion or hallucination. And that really is what sin is, isn't it? When man makes himself the point of reference and then he finds himself living in a false world, it is not a world that is real, it is not a world that is anchored in ultimate reality. It is a world that is coming to an end because it is false and it is out of touch with that ultimate reality, which is God. And that really is what the scripture is talking about when it talks about a man being lost. Lost to meaning, lost to fulfillment, but lost ultimately to life because what he is headed for is eternal death because the way of a man is not in himself. It is in something and someone outside of himself. We need help because the answer to our problems is not in us. Now, where is it? It is in one who never changes because we shift and change. Do you know anything more changeable than a man? Watch your own moods or look at the human race. Look at the world about you. Man changes and he's a master changing according to circumstances. Flux and flow, that is the order. Change and decay in all around I see. What I need is a point or a person who never changes. And he's always there. And he is reality. And I can get in touch with him. And I can live a real life. And I can make progress. And I can grow and become what I ought to be because I am related to something that changes not and never moves. And, of course, that is the one whom we call Jesus. He is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Change and decay and all around us, the O thou who changes not, abide with me, the need of my life, is the one about whom it was said that he is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega. And when I come to know him, I know both note, I know both the starting point and I know the goal. And then I do not have to be lost, but I can live my life in terms of truth and reality and fulfillment because this is the one for whom I am made and he is not only the beginning and the end of the world about us, but he is to be the beginning of life for me and he is to be the end of life for me and then I am in touch with that which is real. That's the reason... That is really the major difference between Christian education and other educational systems, isn't it? You read the Greek thought and you will find that Socrates said if a man will look deeply enough within himself, he will find the answer to his problem. 
You study much of the world of psychology and psychiatry today, and you will find that much of it is based on an assumption that if a man has enough time and is fervent enough, looks hard enough, someday, somewhere deep in the recesses of his own being, he will refine the resources that are necessary for living successfully and adequately. And the prophet centuries before Christ was born said it is an illusion. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct, it, to direct his steps. That's the reason it's such folly for a person to say, I'm going to do my own thing. Like the pilot who looks at the artificial horizon and says, I don't care if the blue is on the bottom. Or the person who says, it's my life, I'm going to live it. Or the person who says, don't try to impose on me something that is alien to me. I want to be myself. We're the only creatures in existence who can never be ourselves if we build ourselves around ourselves. The way of a man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his steps. The answer to our life needs is outside of us. Not something we brought into the world with us. It is something that we can only invite to come and enter into our life. I love the consistency of Scripture at this. Never does it suggest that the answer to my need is within me. It always suggests that he is one who comes to me from without. I'm sure that that's one of the major purposes of the virgin birth, that the Savior of the world was not the result just of natural processes. He was one that came from beyond. I remember a great theologian, Edwin Lewis, a generation ago, who said to a bunch of young preachers, he said, I can split this crowd this morning on one question, and I can decide, I can know instantly whether you have a gospel or whether you do not, whether you have any good news for men or whether you don't, and it's this. Was Jesus Christ the Son of Mary who became the Son of God, or was he the Son of God who became the Son of Mary? And if he's the Son of Mary who became the Son of God, you have no good news for any man. But if he's the Son of God who came from beyond and outside and came to us to redeem us, then we have a help that is greater than our own, and we have good news for every man. You see, the way of a man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his steps. I am sure that that's the reason for the, one of the reasons for the ascension. We never talk about the ascension, but when Christ came, he came from beyond and he went to the beyond. He is not trapped within our life. The answer to our needs is not inherent and intrinsic to us. He's not a part of us. He comes from beyond to us. Our right Holman Hunt was when he gave us that great painting, The Light of the World, and you will remember it is a picture of Jesus standing with the lantern, the lamp in his hand, and he is not standing in the middle of a man's life. He is standing outside knocking at that door, saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and will open the door, I will come into him and will suck with him and he with me. Outside, in. The key to our existence. That's really what it means to be a creature. And do you know what idolatry is? 
Idolatry is when we say that we're complete packages in ourselves and our life is a complete package in ourselves or in itself. Idolatry is when we attach completeness to the creature and to the creation. The key is not in us. It is from beyond. It is in him. Now you say, well, then there is something that is outside that's alien, but that's the beautiful thing. Mystery of mystery. That the one who is not us, when he comes to us, we find that he is not an enemy, and he is not even a stranger, and he is not an alien, he is a friend. I do not think I've ever met, met any man who ever really came to know Christ. But when he did, he said, you know, he's the one I've been looking for all these years and never knew what I needed. Not an alien. When he comes, he knocks as an outsider, but when we let him in, we find that he is not really an outsider. It is his house that he has entered, and he is the host. I was reading that passage about Peter when Jesus turned and said, Whom do men say that I am? Then he said, Whom do you say that I am? And Peter said, We know who you are. We know that you're the Christ. And you know the Christ was the one that all Israel was looking for. Not a part of Israel. God's gift to Israel the one for whom they all look. And that's what the prophet is saying. The answer to our needs is not in us. It is in one who comes to us. And this defines for us. It sets the context for everything in the Christian gospel. And in these services from night to night, we're going to talk about him. And we're going to talk about what it means to please him and what is necessary to please him. And we're going to talk about what he can do for us when he comes to us, what he wants to do for us, what he already has done for us, and what he needs to do for us. We're going to talk about the one who is the answer to our needs, who comes to us and knocks at our lives and says, will you let me in? It defines sin for us because the essence of sin is simply for me to try to live without him. I don't care how you categorize it or what particular thing it is. The essence of sin is when you try to build your life without him and it will end in illusion. That's the reason pride is the greatest of all sins. And pride is not when a man recognizes if he has an IQ of 160, he says, I'm brighter than the fellow who's sitting next to me. Pride is when we falsely build our lives in reference to ourselves instead of in reference to him and in dependence upon him. Two things through. That really illustrates what conversion is, isn't, doesn't it? What it means to become a Christian. Man isn't a Christian because he's born in a Christian home. You don't receive Christ by natural birth. A man is not a Christian because he is a member of a Christian church. You don't receive Christ by being a part of a Christian tradition. A man is not even a Christian or a woman by being a part of a Christian family like this family. A man or woman is only a Christian when he or she says to God, you are the one whom I need. You are the one whom I need. Come, come, Lord Jesus, to me. Now that explains very well what holiness is, who doesn't. Holiness is simply coming to the place where the one who is not you, who is the Holy One, where you let him bring the totality of your life under his sovereign control and influence 
to where you are entirely his, and he sanctifies you wholly unto himself, and you then, your life, is an illustration of the kingdom of God. Now that's what we're going to be dealing with in these nights and in these chapels. And I'd like to ask you, as we come to the close, what do you base your faith on and your hope on tonight? Is it on something within, or is it on Christ? Who rules in your life tonight? Is it yourself, or is it that one who comes and knocks at your heart and says, let me come in? What are the resources that you draw upon to live? Do you live in the strength that is yours? Or have you let the one who is the conqueror of death and hell and the grave and who is life itself and holiness, have you let him come in so that the life that you now live, you live not in human resources, but you live in the power of the one who gave his life for us that his life might become our life and that our lives might be lived in that power and with those resources. Now, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his steps. May God help us to turn our attention to him. Not the person who sits in front of you that's important, or the person who sits behind you, or the person who sits behind, beside you, or the one who stands in front of you. The one whom you do not see, but the one whose presence you feel. Have you opened your life fully and completely to him? Shall we bow our heads together for prayer?